Hello and welcome to the Property Roundup here on iProperty Radio with myself, Carol Tallon. The show where we chat to industry experts to get a view on activity on the ground and to learn about new trends emerging. This show is sponsored by DAF.ie, Ireland's most visited property website. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by returning guest, Ronan Lyons, Associate Professor at Trinity College Dublin and Economist with DAFT. Ronan, you're welcome back. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on again, Carol. Um, Ronan, I, I feel like we are constantly moving through a cycle of reports uh, um, that, that are giving increasingly confusing news about the property market. So let's start let's start maybe with an overview of the rental market just based on the most recent uh, daft report. So you might just give us some of the, the headline insights from the most recent data. Absolutely. Now, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different reports and, and many of them cover different elements. What the DAF report, I think, I, well, I mean, ho- hopefully I can objectively uh, comment on it or somewhat objectively comment on it. What I think it's good for is it gives a good sense of the open market in the, in, in, in the rental side of things. Uh, there is a measure in the report which looks at the rent paid by city tenants, so people who don't move. And over the last seven or eight years, those two things have diverged that, that if you stay put, you, you're on a different path than if you, if you move. In the open market, it has been at least two and a half years or so, um, or arguably you could say seven or eight years with a little break around COVID, of worsening availability of, of homes to rent. So somebody in the open market would have had uh, only a couple of hundred properties to choose from in Dublin this time last year. Since then, and this is what the focus of our, of our November report was, things in Dublin have actually improved a bit that there were almost three times as many properties available to rent on the 1st of November this year than the 1st of November last year. It's still at a very low level uh, compared to what you might think of as healthy for the Dublin markets. We're still only a a fraction of of what's healthy. Um, But but that said, it's an improvement. It's, It's moving in the right direction. And I think what particularly underscores this is when you look at what's happening elsewhere in the country, that improvement is not happening elsewhere in the country and rents are still increasing. There's parts of the country where rents are up 20% year on year. In Dublin, in the open market, rents are up only 1% since the start of the year. Uh, And that would be a pretty dramatic change based on what we had seen in 2021 and 2022. And Rona, what do you attribute that to? I mean, because we're seeing this increasing urban-rural divide, we're seeing increasingly post-COVID that people are choosing rural Ireland. Um, but but as you rightly point out, there isn't new stock coming on the market. So, uh, what what is um I suppose what are the factors that are driving um the what are the driving those stats? Um, are we just seeing slightly more supply coming into the Dublin market? Yeah, if we if we think about a, a, a step back in the process, what is it that what is it that Dublin in particular and the country in general needs? It needs more homes. Policy has focused has traditionally focused on homes for owner occupiers. That's where the, the the biggest votes are, I suppose. More recently, it's put a lot of attention on uh, social housing, broadly defined. There's new cost rental, there's shared equity, there's various different supports for owning and for uh, for social housing. The bit that only got attention for a couple of years before it was sort of put back on the shelf is rental housing. In 2018, the government made a conscious choice to try and encourage 
new supply in the rental market. Now, what happened, unfortunately, is that COVID happened in the middle of that. And before any of these new homes came to fruition, got built and finished, uh, they, they all got sort of tied up in, in, the, in the lockdowns. And at that time, a lot of political pressure came from the government. They said, well, look, you, you made all these concessions for the rental sector and nothing's come on stream. What are you going to do now? And they sort of basically caved in and said, you know what, you're right. Let's. And they, they got rid of the bill to rent and they got rid of strategic housing developments. But in between, so there's about uh, three and a half, four years where government policy did actually favour rental housing. A pipeline emerged of maybe 40 to 50,000 rental homes, almost all of them in Dublin. And, and those are starting to come on stream. So they would have gone through planning um, and then the financing, construction and so on. And, and over the last 18 months in particular, there's been a steady stream of these new rental homes into the Dublin market. And that's the only difference between Dublin and the rest of the country in terms of the rental market. It's the extra supply that the capital is seeing that the rest is not. And that's why I think we're seeing rents stabilise in Dublin as they still rise elsewhere in the country. Um, it's it's very helpful for me, uh, not being an economist, to hear you clarify there about that kind of window of pro-PRS policy. But a, a window by its very nature I, I has closed now. So what's that? What does that do in terms of forecasting? You know, are we seeing a temporary respite in the Dublin market? Yeah, I, I would estimate that the Dublin market alone is probably short something like 70 to 90,000 rental homes, or at least was as of 2021, say, was short somewhere between 70 and 90,000 rental homes. It, it's added maybe 12 or 15,000, and it may add another 12 or 15,000 before the current pipeline sort of closes out, the planning permissions will expire and that kind of thing. Uh, the whole international environment has changed. Ireland moved at a reasonably good time. I won't say at the best time. It could have been maybe three or four years sooner in doing so. Um, but it moved at a reasonably good time in favour of, of private rental developments. Um, but as it closed that window, as, as you described it, the international macroeconomic environment uh, changed completely. We went from no inflation in the world economy to lots of inflation post-COVID and post the invasion of, of Ukraine. And now when we look at where capital is looking to invest, it can get pretty solid returns on you know, these re reasonably safe assets like government debt. So it's less interested in private rental than it would have been three or four years ago. So even if the even if the window is still open, it would be a slower flow anyway. And, and really the ultimate challenge is this is not a Dublin-specific problem. We need new rental housing in Cork and Galway and Sligo and Athlone and all around the country. Every single town and every single city needs lots of new rental housing. But the only place, even with conditions as favourable as they were, the only place it was viable was in Dublin. And that's a more fundamental problem. So... There's a, a kind of a, uh, the window is closing. Dublin may get 30,000, perhaps even 40,000 new rental homes in this particular episode. That is very welcome, but it almost certainly won't be enough to bring rents back down in the wider market to affordable levels. And of course, it does nothing to solve the problem elsewhere in the country. That's a more deep-seated issue, in particular around construction costs. The construction costs that aren't quite high compared to everyday incomes.
Um, I want to come back to talk about the viability of, of development in the regions. But just before we move off this topic, you know, when we're looking at um, rental increases of um, a, an average of 1% in Dublin versus up to 20% in the regions, um, you know, what is that telling us about um, about what we can expect to see in the regions? And, you know, I always enjoy your work because you explain the data, you explain the trends that underpin those stats. So, um how do you how do you explain say the the huge rises we've seen across the regions? Is that purely down to uh, there was supply and pe- people using it and and there's no new supply? Like how do you explain that? So if we if we go back to the 2010s, the, the rental inflation in the 2010s was mostly a city's phenomenon. So it was Dublin and Cork and Galway and Limerick and to a lesser extent Waterford. And it was the Dublin area. It was the counties around Dublin too. That's not to say conditions were easy elsewhere, but it was nothing really like what we were seeing in, in the in the main cities. Availability was falling out in rural areas, but it wasn't really a problem. Two things changed. The first was like a reshuffling within the country of where the rental demand is. And that was because of COVID. But while owner-occupiers had for some time been sort of testing the limits of how far down the motorway network they could go and still keep the, the, you know, the, the ship afloat, so to speak, in terms of keeping the household running, renters had never really done that. But with office-based work going virtual for a long time and, and partly uh, virtual still, uh, lots of renters said, well, you know, we can try and do the same. So I had a postdoc um, who lived in Clare and worked in Trinity. And when he came, he, he came to Trinity when he needed to, but he was happy out living in Lidge and coming to Dublin when he needed to. And he wouldn't have been able to do that pre, uh, pre-COVID-19. So there was a, a reshuffling that hasn't really worked its way through yet. We're still in that kind of adjustment phase that rents in Dublin are up maybe 20% since the pandemic, but rents in rural Ireland are up 50%. And that's that's showing us that that kind of gap between Dublin and elsewhere is narrowing because it's easier to live in rural Ireland. The, the second bit is that as that readjustment, which if you think of it as like Dublin versus rural Ireland adjusting, maybe cities versus rural Ireland adjusting, on top of that, Ukraine happened. And that kind of supercharged the rental sector that was already very strained, as in we had 100,000 extra people to accommodate. And everything in the housing system in Ireland got stretched almost to breaking point. And it, that, that, that has eased, right? The, the volume of people coming into the country has slowed down quite a bit. Um, but it is still an extra 100,000 people relatively quickly that, that have to get, get incorporated into the system. And that really... That's driving, I think, a lot of the pressure around the country. And only in Dublin are we seeing enough to kind of even partly offset that. And um, with the the demand uh, by the influx of people, you know, particularly we're, we're seeing a certain amount of that working through the system. We're seeing um, certainly the ramping up of delivery by the OPW of offsite and, and modular homes around the country that hopefully will then have subsequent juice after that. And I know there hasn't been a huge amount of commentary about that. But I'm 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 curious about what you describe as a reshuffling of demand across the country um post-COVID. Is it too early to read into this? Um I know you described it as, as really not yet settled, but the reality is we saw that for 
possibly the first time in a generation workers got to choose where they lived because they didn't have to live beside the, their workplace or within easy commute of the workplace. And so increasingly we were seeing people choose further away. So whether that was for affordability, whether it was for quality of life or or because there, there was a place to live, whatever the reason, um, this, this reshuffling of demand, as you describe it across the country, what can we read into that about um, is it too early to read anything in terms of demographic trends? Well, I think I, I think if we if we look bigger picture, we've gone from a kind of what you might think of as industrial economies. And Ireland maybe skip this bit, but if you look at rich countries in general, they were industrial economies um, where sort of inevitable that you were going to be close to the factory or within easy commuting distance of the factory and the agricultural sector was small and obviously Ireland was quite different in this regard until quite late on. Uh, and then as you go from the 20th into the 21st century, it's a lot more about services and clustering when you're when you're thinking about services, clustering is a lot more human-based than, than factory-based, as in you uh, people tend to go either where there are consumption and leisure amenities, and you talk about nature earlier on, close to the coastline or close to other kind of natural amenities or kind of anchors for, for humans. Um, uh, but, but also it could be just other people, right? That, that we like clustering, we're a social species. We love clustering together um, uh, because that allows us to enjoy kind of variety, whether it's variety of restaurants or variety of gigs or whatever it might be, whatever you're doing at your stage in life. So cities have become these centres for skill and enjoyment rather than just centres of industry and pollution. And um, that was the swing pre-COVID. And COVID comes into that in, in the, or at least the post-COVID reorganisation of work, comes into that because the work bit gets weakened. Right? You don't necessarily have to pick a location just for work. You can pick it more for leisure and consumption and and your households than your than your income, and what it means in practice is that the a lot of these cities, Dublin is an example, but you look at other cities in the US or London in the UK, they had seen these kind of growing differentials with the rest of their countries in terms of rental costs in particular, housing costs more generally, and the kind of reshuffling of demand, as I as I described it earlier, it that's narrowing that differential. The differential won't go away. People like cities because people like variety um, and you can get more variety the more people there are around you. Um, but ultimately, when it's expensive to do so, if there are other options that's going to happen, I don't think I don't think this kind of reshuffling is going to upset completely the, the, the fact that we like cities. I think it's like when there was this kind of almost 100% differential between Dublin and elsewhere, that it's going to shrink to maybe 70%. Um, and then once it's reached its new level, that's what it is. Right? When we figured out we do three days a week um, at home and two in the office, or you're in the office twice a month in certain sectors, whatever it might be, I think that's we're going to, there'll, there'll be a smaller differential and we'll proceed. And we're probably not that far from figuring out what new normal is. I think be, being honest, it's... Uh, it's three years now, or three and a half years, and um, we've had to kind of figure it out. And I think firms are a lot more, they're closer to the end um, than they are to the beginning in terms of figuring out how to do work in the in the uh, virtual world. 
Um, but then this is probably an unfair question to ask when I know that you, you deal with data, but I suppose in figuring out what our new normal is going to be, do you think that, you know, our underpinning policy documents like the National Planning Framework, you know, that, that we base our development assumptions on, do you think that they are going to be challenged? Yeah, well, as it, as it happens, I have a strong belief that the NPF and then the housing targets that flow from it are, are built on an inherent contradiction anyway. So the NPF says this is a national planning framework and this is supposed to guide Ireland's development out to 2040. On the one hand, this is slightly separate to my point, but I can't, I can't sort of not mention it because I believe in it so strongly, is it systematically underestimates Ireland's growth. And we, we do this again and again in this country. We kind of don't allow for growth to be stronger than the baseline. And then by not allowing for growth to be stronger than the baseline, we get caught out. We don't have enough schools. We don't have enough roads. We don't have enough buses or trains. We don't have enough homes. Right? And that's that's one point. And I think it's been shown up yet again, right? Growth between 2016 and 2022 was a lot stronger than even the upper end of the population projections. And we really kind of have to acknowledge that we persistently get it wrong as a country in predicting, or not even predicting, projecting the future, the scenarios for the future. But anyway, that's my that's my rant uh, on, on, on the sort of side point, but it's an important one about the NPF, as in it had to get reviewed anyway. And then on top of that, the inherent contradiction in the NPF is that it says on the one hand, we want to allow people to be close to their work and close to their family and friends. And on the other hand, we want to limit the growth of Dublin. Which is it? Because if you look at Ireland over the last 25 years, Ireland has been an extraordinary success story in limiting urban growth. Dublin is a smaller share of the population now than it was 30 years ago or even 60 years ago. We've managed to block Dublin's growth, but at what cost? What, what's happened is our, uh, Dubliners are now the, the single biggest kind of internally displaced group of, of, of Irish people. You've got Dubliners living not just in Neve and Kildare, but in Wexford, in Cavan, in Leash, in Offaly. That's the way the policymakers have effectively squared the circle. But I don't think that's appropriate or adequate. I don't think it's the right response. I think we should allow people to live close to their family and friend or their work if they so wish. And that means allowing Dublin and Cork and Galway to grow a lot faster than they have done over the past 30 years crudely to grow up rather than grow out although the slight simplification that people would say well Dublin has grown it's grown into me and it's grown into Cavan it's grown into Wexford it didn't need to it, it, it could have been contained inside Dublin City and for somebody like me who might who doesn't understand when you talk about I, I know you said it was only a side point but but it's something I'm curious about the NPF you know in that context what could be the motivation for a country systematically underestimating its growth? Because that, to me, feels like um, uh, almost planning to fail, planning for our budgets to fail. It's like planning for our health service to be insufficient, planning for our housing to be insufficient. What? I mean, so you say systematically, what would be the motivation? Is it fear? I... Is it fear of success? It's um, it, it, it fear mightn't be exactly the right word, but you're definitely in the right area. I my pet theory as to why Ireland is systematically under projecting its future growth is because from the birth of the country in the 1920s through to the 1990s, 
pretty much every decade was a disappointment, right? So there was no sort of history of population growth. And that, that extended way back to the 1840s. So there was no period in which you could say, well, Ireland has grown strongly and therefore we need to uh, allow for it. And sort of almost to prove the point, the exception that proves the rule is the one time we got confident and put in really strong population projections was after the 2006 census. And so look what happened just then. I do believe there's an implicit belief that if you put down on paper strong numbers for growth, that you're tempting the fates that the gods will smite you down and then you'll be in some sort of recession. As if you, as if you somehow causally bring about the recession by putting down that we could potentially grow by more. And, and bear in mind, I'm not saying that every projection has to be higher than it was. What I'm saying is that the range has to be bigger, that the up and the, the, the like, instead of having a range of 30,000 to 10,000 for, for net migration, the range might be 50,000 a year to zero. Right, so that you actually have a, a, a lower end that's that's lower than currently and an upper end that's higher than currently, that we need to be able to deal with more uncertainty than we're, we're currently doing. But I fundamentally believe that if you asked the Irish policy system, they would rather they would rather under project and then deal with the consequences and over project and have to deal with the political consequences. But you said we were going to grow by this. No, it didn't. It was one of the projections, but you had in the document we were going to grow by that much. And I think corporation tax is a good example here. You notice over the last six or seven years, we've consistently under projected our corporate tax revenues. Well, that's kind of convenient because every time the budget comes around, oh, it turns out we've an extra 500 million or we've an extra one and a half billion that we can dole out next year that we didn't have planned for. And that's good news, right? It's like Santa Claus coming along on budget day and saying, you weren't expecting this, here's an extra present. But as you say, without incorporating that, without including it in the plans, we underprovide for everything from healthcare for the elderly down to childcare places for two and three-year-olds. It just doesn't make sense. I, I've never heard it described um in a historical context that every decade was a disappointment. I'm really going to have to think about that because actually from a policy point of view, and to hear the only exceptions that was the Celtic Tiger, which which has been blamed for everything that came after it. So um, that's an interesting context. But I do want to, I'm conscious of your time and I do want to talk about the the viability of development in the regions because, you know, through the different work with the CIF, the SCSI, you know, IPAV, uh, um, the the uh, IBEC and PII, there are so many bodies highlighting this as one of the most significant challenges. And when I hear you talk about policy to limit the growth of Dublin, so where are we encouraging growth? But I mean, by and large, the, the housing projections that are underpinning the local authorities' development plans for most of the 2020s are based on more estate housing, right? The formerly national policy is about density for the first time. You know, that was, that's relatively new in the last five years that the government has recognized density is a key part of the solution. But de facto, when you look at the numbers that come out of the methodology they have, which is called the HNDA, the Housing Needs and Demand Assessment, when you look at the numbers that come out of that, it's actually based on maintaining the structure of, you know, three, four, five person households relative to one and two person households. That is way out of date. Um, so it means that the system is preparing to build a lot more state housing on greenfield sites, even though at a top level, the system knows it needs more one and two bit apartments in the cities and towns. And part of that is because 
it's cheaper up front to build houses than it is to build apartments. So why don't we just build a house in which five young professionals are going to buddy up and in a three bed, as opposed to build three apartments, you know, uh, two two beds and a one bed, um, and let them live there. And and I think that's that's the easy that's the that's, that's the easy solution, but it's not the right solution socially. Like we we need to be able to get good at building apartments and and doing density. You know, um, actually, I think you've you've put your finger on it there. Um, it's about getting density right because I've lived in other uh, in other countries in apartments where they were superbly laid out, very well, um, very well serviced. In Ireland, that's just not what we've built. Um, and I think there is a bit of a legacy hangover here that. Irish people do like their front of back garden. And, and I've seen quite recently some of the larger developers coming out and saying, hold on a second, maybe there's there's maybe we can satisfy both sets of criteria. Like, you know, maybe we can do smaller so we can we can achieve density um, while still giving people, you know, smaller back garden or, uh, you know, maybe looking at these duplexes that, you know, trying to find a trying to find a remedy there and in fact what we're seeing still is that the only the people who are choosing them are the people who have to choose them as in it's the the max of their mortgage rates or they end up being purchased by approved housing bodies en masse so what does that tell us about what people are choosing yeah i mean if you look part of it is the way our housing system is set up that we've inherited like a post 1950s housing system where you live with your parents until you get married and then you buy your own family home and you stay there till you die and then you're off to the funeral home and that's it. Um, and in, in that housing system, right, back in the 1950s, male life expectancy was 65. It sort of made sense, right? You you got married in your early 20s and by the time your youngest kid got married, you were in your early 60s and you were basically dead then, right? So we didn't need any other kind of housing before or after your, your family. But if you run through the life cycle now, you, you know, people live into their 90s they're not getting married till or having kids until their early mid-30s. So you've got, if you start at age 18, you've got 10 to 15 years of pre-housing family need. And then if you're you, you don't have six kids anymore, you've you've two or whatever. And by the time you're 60, your kids are also in principle in the healthy housing system, 18 and uh, are off living their own lives. You've another 30 years left of your own housing need. So the, the, the family home, the family house, so to speak, is still important, but it's only part of the housing need. But we, the Irish system is based on this being the single most important financial and housing decision you make in your entire life because it determines where you're going to spend the rest of your days. And what we need to move to is a system that embraces diversity a lot more. Like you, you talked about, do, are we happy to live in apartments? Well, I, I like... Uh, you won't find a, a bigger proponent of Ireland should build more apartments than, than me, but I'm not saying that families should live in apartments. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I'm not saying that, that that's what I'm arguing for. And what I'm arguing is that we have so many one and two person households, people, you know, couples, young people, older people, um, who have no other choice but to live in a family house, um, that we should be building housing for them. And by doing that, we free up family homes for families. And realistically, we already have more family homes than we will ever have families, even with really optimistic population projections. We've got we've got 2 million homes and about 1.8 million of those 
our family houses. And we're just, you know, we're never going to have 1.8 million families. So we, we don't really need to build any more family homes. We need to build homes for all the other types of households we have. And again, this is something that we talk about a lot when we talk about uh, the not just the diversity of the types of homes, the type of tenure that we want, whether it's across the rental, private, um, whether it's for people at early stage in their life or those looking for um, private homes um, in their senior or in their aging years. We, we just don't have a diversity of our stock at all. Can you point to any country and say, you know, yeah, they, they seem to be doing this right because it feels like in Ireland we talk a big game about innovation in the housing market. It's so difficult to see the evidence of it. You know, yes, we've seen cost rental coming in a, a new type of tenure, but say in terms of the designs that are being delivered across the development sector, you know, we talk about the need for future proofing our homes, but from what I can see, that's essentially putting a a full bathroom instead of just WC downstairs. That's not really future-proofing our homes. No, no, it's not. And you see, it goes back to something we talked about earlier, is that when you look at most of our peers, you pick any small, wealthy European country we want to compare ourselves to, uh, they, they because they were enjoying population growth in the late 19th century, throughout the 20th century, they had to get good at building apartments then. We've only had to start doing it in the last 20 years, and for most of that, we weren't building any. Um, and that, that's why it's a unique challenge. We, we can certainly look to what other countries do about, for example, how they zone and how they do planning, and we can, we can try and do better. Um, but it's our, it's our own challenge that no other country has because no other country has had to face the same demographic path that we've had over the last 100 years or so. And in practical terms, that's not saying very high level, in practical terms, if you're the Minister for Housing, what you need to do or you need to have at your fingertips is an assessment of, you know, for different maybe financial models of providing housing and for different types of homes, what you know how how far up the income distribution do you need to be to afford the kind of break-even two-bed apartment, one-bed apartment, three-bed house, four-bed house, right? And where does social housing interact with that break-even point? And if there's a big gap, right? If the social housing only covered the bottom 10% and the break-even point is kind of two-thirds of the way up the income distribution, you've got kind of everywhere from like 10 to 70 or 65% of the income distribution is not being covered by either the social housing system or the market, that's where your policy uh, needs to be focused. And in, it's in one sense, it's increasing the provision of social housing, but in a more real sense, it's it's about reducing the costs of, um, of the various financial models. And I think that's the bit the government has shied away from for the last five years, maybe even 10 years, because it's not easily controllable. It's easy to say, oh, look, we've put together a, a 70 million euro fund for vacant derelict homes. It's easy to say, look, we have a new shared equity scheme and it's just going to cost us X. But to actually go into the nitty gritty and figure out why is it so expensive to build an Ireland? What did we do wrong along the way? That That's a, a messy exercise, no guarantee of success. And for, for obvious political reasons, if unfortunate, politicians and policymakers have steered clear of it. But we can't really steer clear of it any longer. As in, look at the costs around us in terms of say, younger adults not being able to start their own independent lives. Um, there's more and more data emerging that um, 
I, I suppose co- uh, puts a question mark over. So, for example, the the most re- or not the most recent, but a recent um, turnaround Townsend report looking at uh, construction costs globally. I was really surprised to see Ireland had the second lowest labour costs in Ireland, or sorry, in in Europe, um, in terms of construction delivery. I, I would have expected that to be higher, and um, and. Uh, I know the currency has done a large body of work around this as well. <coughs> Excuse me, isolating the costs um, of um, the uh, what what are driving up construction costs, and then isolating maybe the the planning and policy regulations and the charges there. So when we look at when we look at the viability of development, are we even looking at the right figures? I mean, it, it feels to me like a certain amount of this should be within the control of the state. Yeah, like if you think about the fundamental paradox of, of housing policy is that policymakers care about one measure, which is affordability. Right? Think of that as the ratio of prices to incomes. Right? If, if the ratio of prices to incomes is right, they'll get re-elected and people will like them. Supply, though, doesn't care about prices to incomes. Supply cares about prices to costs. Right? So what that means policymakers need to do is they need to look at costs to incomes. But how how do costs compare to incomes, um, as as I was saying uh, uh, um, a few minutes ago? So the challenge, as you said, there's so many sets of figures swirling around about how much it costs to build or not. The government benefits from that confusion in that it can say, well, it's it's a little bit unclear. This study says this, this study says that. And this study compares Dublin to two other cities and it says there's no problem. That was one study that they liked to cite. uh, but if the government has its own set of figures, if it owns its own set of figures and updates them on a regular basis, it can't just disavow them and go, well, there's, there's, uh, there's, who knows? It's, it's, it's anyone's guess as to what's going on. And I think that's the bit that has to happen next, is that whether it's the housing agency or the Department of Housing or Department of Public Expenditure, but somebody or the land development agency, somebody inside the state system needs to run those numbers and say, this is what it actually costs. If you were to go out right now, this is what it would cost on a reasonable basis to, to, to build this type of accommodation, that type of accommodation. Um, I suspect you're talking about uh, arms of the state there. I suspect the industry would love if the LDA was the body to do that, because quite frankly, their performance to date, I, I think the industry would like to see that held up as, as the cost, because I I'm not sure how efficient they are in terms of delivery, and and I, that's part of a larger conversation. I, I so I I won't draw you into that, but I I suppose it's it's trying to understand from where we are now, how is this situation going to improve? Because you know it was you know at a, at a national level, it was embarrassing to see the IMF come over within the last month and and explain why. For why affordability in the rental market can only be improved through increased supply. That's that seemed that seemed like something that we shouldn't have needed to be told. Um, and and from where we are now, you know, looking at forecasts over the next twelve months, how are things going to improve? I think yeah. Firstly, you're right. It's it's embarrassing, although not uniquely Irish. There's there's a number of places where what's known as supply-side scepticism has become prevalent. Um, it, it is unique to housing, and I think the reason it's unique to housing is because of the fundamental nature of housing compared to other 
goods, as in it takes a long time for a new supply to happen. So what people see happening, supply comes along, it's like the umbrella comes along when it's raining. But what if it took two years for the umbrella to open, right? You'd be standing there in the rain and the umbrella would open and you'd be like, well, this is useless, right? Like, look at this. Whereas if the umbrella opens quickly, then you're like, you can see the point. And I think some of it is people see supply only happening when prices are going up and, and the causality gets flipped in their head. And they're like, this isn't helping at all because supply is happening and prices are going up. Whereas they don't see what prices would have been if that supply hadn't been built. So it's, it is embarrassing, uh, I think, to have to be reminded that more supply will make costs lower, prices lower. That should be Econ 101. Um, but it's something that we're seeing in, in lots and lots of, of cities now with this debate of is it even helping if someone comes along and builds a thousand new apartments? In terms of prospects for 2024, um, I think the last three to six months probably set a template for what the next nine to 12 months will look like. Um, beyond that, it's probably a little bit less certain. But the latest figures, I had a piece in the currency recently um, looking at the uh, importing tower cranes. Uh, and the importing of tower cranes has actually increased in the last uh, six to nine months. I would have expected it to have fallen because we've stopped building offices. Um, uh, but no, uh, we haven't stopped. But uh, there's no increase in, the, in building office space. Um, whereas the, the, it, it seems that the construction of apartments, these planning permissions that came in when that window was open, and some of those are, are now getting started. And that will mean that in Dublin, I suspect there'll be limited inflation over the next nine to 12 months. Um, but there's no relief elsewhere. So I think we're talking probably about double digit increases to continue in many parts of the country in 2024. How can we expect that then to impact development in the region? So say even looking at Cork, Limerick and Galway. I think Cork is the most likely next market, uh, if, that's, if that's good English, I'm not sure it is, um, uh, in, 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 in which to expect some supply. But the relief in the Cork market is going to be relatively small, even compared to the scale of Dublin. You're talking about a couple of thousand new apartments in a city that's had nothing, no new apartments built for the rental sector in 15 years at this stage, since the Elysian opened. Um, in Galway, it's even smaller again. I think there's two or three proposed developments. That's not enough for a city that is a major uh, hub for its uh, medical devices and a couple of other sets of activities. I mean, that ring road around Galway is an absolute nightmare. In terms of, you, know, you have three or four firms, each of which employs thousands of people. Um, and yet there's no new rental accommodation. So. Uh, un unfortunately, it's going to be almost exclusively concentrated in not just in the greater Dublin area, but in Dublin itself. I mean, there'll be a couple of developments in Meath and Kildare and, and, and Wicklow, but it's almost entirely a, a, a Dublin-focused solution, at least for the moment. Perhaps the LDA, uh, with its, I think it's its Project Tussig scheme, um, where it may activate some of these um, unactivated plannings, it has a more of a regional mandate than the private sector would. So it's possible that may help shift the gears, but they will need um, some uh, some basically collateral from the government or in relation to construction costs, because construction costs will effectively be the same in Galway or Limerick or Waterford as they are in Dublin, um, but rents will be much lower. Um, and I suppose final question, because I'm very conscious of your time and thank you for being so generous today. Um, but just... Because we may be looking at a, a change in in uh, political leadership at at this point, is there any 
political and and really by that I I, I mean direct policy change that could that could uh, positively impact uh, delivery over the next say three years. Well, I don't think there's any super quick wins, but but absolutely you could put in place if you think about the we were talking earlier about you know the, the it's it, politicians focus on prices relative to incomes. But because supply, the construction sector focuses on prices relative to costs, really it's in the cost side. What are the main elements in that cost side? You've got the, the cost and availability of land, of labor, of capital, of materials, and the, the, the effective cost of regulation as well. And in each of those elements, you can certainly take effort, especially around land, around regulation, and around capital. And you can certainly take relatively quick wins um, in terms of what an economist would describe as shifting out the, the supply of land, making making it clear what land is available for development and, and how the infrastructure is going to be provided, for example. None of that is going to pay off before the election, though. So whether it gets done is a, you know, I let the political scientists handle that one. You know, uh, every time I talk to you, Ronan, I learn something new. And I mean, that phrase, supply side scepticism, um, describes what we've been dealing with for a while here, but um, there's there's surely an equivalent for the type of policy changes that won't get done because they're not politically um appealing. There there must be there must be an equivalent expression. I'm not sure. I I'm not sure if you know what it is, but uh, the supply side skepticism. I'm glad to have learned that because that will make my language much more diplomatic when I'm critiquing uh, government policy going forward. So thank you so much. Um, I, I genuinely appreciate you joining us today. That was Ronan Lyons, Associate Professor at Trinity College Dublin and Economist with Daft. My thanks to Katie Tallon, producer, and to the production team at Hear Me Roar Media. Also, huge thanks to our show sponsor, Daft.ie, Ireland's most visited property website. And thank you indeed for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Property Roundup here on iProperty Radio.